Nothing would relieve me more than to stand up here today and affirm what a lot of us want to believe. It would take a lot of pressure off. It would be nice to just morph into what a lot of Christians in our generation have chosen to accept. I have to admit that I want to believe this. It's what's comfortable and would make following Jesus a lot more tolerant and pleasant. I mean, if this aspect of entering into a life of Christ didn't exist, there's no question that more people would claim Him as Lord. But the danger is this. It's simply what people want to hear. I mean, to say a few things just to gain the approval of a few people is extremely foolish. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns against this towards the end of his life when he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He writes this to his understudy. He says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. Instead, they will reject the truth and they will chase after myths. As a communicator of God's Word, at times it is tempting for me to tell you what I think you want to hear. And so here's what a part of me wants to say today. Following Jesus in the future will be really easy. I mean, if that were the case, there's no doubt that the church would be bigger. I mean, perhaps we would have more influence in this country. Maybe so many Christians wouldn't fall away if this were the case. I mean, if we could just stick to the benefits of God, like love, grace, redemption, There's no question that the kingdom would expand. But you see, the more I study the ministry of Jesus, and the more I see the persecution the early church endured, the more I realize that God never intended it to be easy. You see, the call to follow Christ is a call to face opposition and persecution. Now, Jesus offers the better way in life, but not necessarily the easier way. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Matthew. And today we're going to be in chapter 24. Matthew is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the Old Testament book of Malachi, New Testament book of Mark. I believe it's on page 701, uh, and the Bible is right in front of you. Now, in this text, there is a lot of speculation about Jesus' words regarding the end times, and let's be honest, we all have curiosity about how the end times will unfold. I mean, we want to know when Jesus will return, right? I was told in Bible college that if you ever want to attract a large crowd in church, you need to preach on three things, sex, the end times, and will there be sex during the end times? (laughs) So I'm going to save that for Ken next week. (laughs) And so Jesus' words here in Matthew 24 regarding the end times, we need to rest and be satisfied in this one truth before we proceed any further today, and it's this. Mystery will always surround how the end times will unfold. Jesus makes it very clear that not even he knows when he will return. We're told that he will come like a thief in the night when we least expect it. And so his words here are not meant to merely satisfy our curiosity about how the end times will unfold as it is to increase our focus on the present to serving Him. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus wants you to be ready for His second coming and final judgment. Now, at this particular point in the week leading up to Jesus' death, where the disciples were at is they wanted to kind of skip out on all the difficulties that came with following Christ. In other words, they just wanted to cash in all the benefits and rewards that came with being that close to the Son of God. And I think that's a lot of our stories in here today, too. I mean, if you're anything like me, you don't mind following Jesus as long as you can control where He leads. But what if that means adopting a child, though you have no idea where you will get the finances to do that? I mean, what if that means sharing the gospel with a neighbor who you've built a relationship with at the risk of them rejecting the message and shunning you from that day forward? 
I mean, what if that means forgiving a father who wanted nothing to do with you as a child, but now that you're older, he wants to be back in your life? You see, here's the thing. Following Jesus is simple, but it's not easy. And so traditionally and historically, whenever the end times has emerged, this topic in the church over the course of 2,000 years, Christians have either responded in one of two ways. We've either run to the world or we've run from the world, but never are we called to retreat. Never are we told to, to act like cowards in fear of what the future might hold. No, instead we're told over 365 times throughout the Bible to not be afraid. I mean, after all, why should we? The God of this universe promises to be on our side. And so the call to follow Christ is a call to encounter adversity and opposition. Jesus never promised to exempt us from trials and pain, but what he did promise was to be with us through it. And so let's look at what uh, Jesus continues to say about what we can anticipate as his followers. Remember, he is speaking to a crowd of men who just wanted to play it safe, but they're in for a really rude wake-up call. Check out verse 9, what Jesus says. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. This is really encouraging, Jesus. Thanks. <laughs> because of the increase of the wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In this gospel, my message, he says, of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, unlike other discussions regarding the end times, persecution is something that is very certain for us. So we don't need to speculate it. We need to anticipate it. It's interesting that in verse 8, prior to this, Jesus compares these signs to, a, uh, to, to the pain that a woman goes through before giving birth. Now, as a father, I've witnessed the birth of my two children, and I just want you to imagine with me for just a moment that my wife is having contractions around the nine-month mark. How well do you think it would go over if the day of these birth pains, I said, you know what, Savannah, um, hang in there. I'm going to go play around to golf, and if the baby comes before I get back, I'll only play nine holes. Now, I would never say that. I would at least play 18. Um, <laughs> But in all seriousness, how horrible of a father and a husband would I be to do that? Why? Because the pain she would be encountering in that moment would be alerting me that there is an event in the future that I need to be a part of. New life is about to be welcomed into this, into this world. And like how the pain of contractions alert you that a baby is about to be born, the pain of opposition and persecution that we encounter as followers of Christ should alert us that this world is not our home, that this is temporary, and we have a lot of people to tell that they can too have a new life in Christ. And so are you running from the world or to the world? Now, every person in here today is in one of three categories. Either you are a growing disciple of Jesus. You have committed and fully surrendered your life to him. The second category would be those who are Christians but maybe have been lately slacking off. You occasionally attend church. Uh, maybe at one point in your life you were baptized. But aside from that, there's little evidence pointing to your salvation. Now, the third category would be those who would consider themselves seekers or skeptics. You're really curious about following Jesus. You're maybe just not there yet. And so regardless of where you're at today, before you leave, you're going to have to make a decision about where you stand with Jesus. Are you in or are you out? There's no such thing as middle ground. Look at what author and uh, pastor Tim Keller says. 
He writes, Jesus demands a radical response of some, of, of some kind, but what you can't do is respond moderately. You can't say, yeah, I'm kind of in. If he's not who he says he is, which is Christ and Lord, then his thinking is deeply distorted and flawed. If he is who he claims to be, he is infinitely more than just a great thinker. Now, if you leave here today and you say, you know what, God, I'm in. Jesus, I'm all yours. I will be a follower. Then you can anticipate being opposed. Your life will not be easier. But you see, what I've come to realize in my life is that my best day without Jesus is far worse than my best day with Jesus. I've come to learn that the worst, I'm sorry, my worst day with Jesus is better than my best day without him. And I hope that everybody in this room can learn to say that too. And so as you process what it means to be persecuted, and as you process what it means to be opposed, and can you count the cost of discipleship of following Jesus, I want you just to think of a few words that will hopefully provide some clarity for you in the midst of this this decision. And the first word is this. It's the word commitment. Commitment. And you can follow along in your outline there in your bulletin. We've provided some blanks for you to do that more easily. Now, in the face of opposition, commitment is required. Look at what Jesus says will be the fallout of persecution in verse 10. He says, at that time, many, a lot of people, will turn away from the faith. Now, if you think about it, there is no such thing as a soldier who is on the front lines of the battlefield who is half in. Either he's fighting with all his might for his country, or he's running away in fear. Now, really, there are two forms of persecution. There is what's called overt persecution, which is blatantly obvious. It's oftentimes physical, when physical harm is put upon you. At times, overt persecution leads to death. Now, gratefully, because we live in a country where the freedom of worship is still embraced and expressed, a lot of us in this room will not encounter overt persecution. But if you don't encounter overt persecution, everyone is at least called to encounter what's called covert persecution. This is a type of opposition and adversity that is emotional, relational, social, and oftentimes it is family-enforced. And so the call to follow Christ, again, is a call to face adversity and conflict. I know of a person in our church here who, um, he's a part of one of our small groups, attends worship here every single week, and uh, he works in an environment where the expression of his faith is not really embraced. He used to read his Bible in his cubicle during his lunch hour, but he can't do that anymore because he is criticized by his coworkers. And so what he does as a result is he goes off to a far off closet, opens up God's word and does his Bible study there. Now, is his life being demanded of him? I mean, is he being publicly beaten in front of his coworkers? No. But ask anyone in here. I mean, who wants to go to a place where you know you'll be criticized and opposed and your coworkers will talk about you behind their back? No one. And yet he is an example of someone who understands that the call to follow Christ is not a call to comfort or convenience. It requires surrender. Uh, Lucian was a a second century Roman historian who wrote very critically about the early church. And many times he wrote about how stupid it was for Jesus' followers to put their faith in a man who died such a lowly death. Now, 2,000 years ago, you have to understand, the cross was not a glamorous piece of jewelry that you wore out in public or to a wedding. No, it was a device of torture so cruel that it was reserved for slaves, murderers, and members of the lowest class. Therefore, the thought that you put your hope in The idea that you rearranged your entire life around a peasant's death device was absolutely insane. 
And many objective records show us that people mocked and made fun of these early believers because they worshiped, quote-unquote, a criminal and his cross. One of the early Christians that we know a lot about planted a church in a very anti-Christian part of the world at the time. Incidentally, it was Rome. But you see, being convinced that Jesus was the only way to salvation, he remained committed until his death. He was martyred sometime around A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. Now, when the Romans sentenced him to death, they called for him to be crucified. He objected. But not against death. You see, tradition tells us that this soon-to-be martyr opposed dying the same way that Jesus did. And And so the Romans crucified the disciple Peter upside down. But you see, before he was murdered, knowing that death was imminent in his life, this is what he wrote to a group of believers encountering the same type of adversity. Take a look. He says this in 2 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at these fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. Have joy. For these trials will make you partners with Christ in his suffering. What? Are you kidding me? You see, Christ is made known in our suffering. And it's in our adversity that we have the opportunity to shine our light to a world that is drowned in misery. I mean, what better way to exemplify hope to those who are headed towards an eternity in hell? Now, you might be thinking to yourself right about now, you know, that's great, but, God, but Patrick, isn't the God who created this universe quite capable of rescuing his children from adversity? I mean, is it too much to think that he could safeguard us from this type of persecution? I mean, of course he can. He's God. And when we encounter opposition in life, he's not running around up in heaven in a frantic frenzy and getting the angels together and saying, all right, come on, come on, get, get together here. I mean, what happened? Did you see Billy's co-workers? I mean, they made fun of him again. I mean, I thought we talked about this. This wasn't going to happen to my kids. No, that's not how God operates. You see, he is sovereign over all and able to intervene in any and every situation. But sometimes God allows opposition to come across our paths because he wants to strip you of anything in your life that is keeping you from deeper dependence upon him. And so if you are overly concerned about your reputation, God might allow someone to spread rumors about you. If you have more trust in your checkbook than you do in Christ alone, God might allow for your parents to take you out of their will because of your faith. Uh, My son, John Ryman, is two years old and has been sick with a fever this past week. Now, what I've come to learn is that this sickness has caused him to be clingier to my wife and I. Now, for a two-year-old little boy who's very independent, this is extremely rare. And he's he's usually more distant and more independent than this. And so when I walk into his room in the middle of the night and he's screaming and he's crying, he doesn't tell me to leave. Why? Because he knows that I'm there to help him and I've got medication with me that will make him feel better. You see, in the midst of his pain, he knows that his dad is the only one that can comfort him. And likewise, in the midst of our adversity, in the midst of our pain, there is only one who can comfort us and give us just enough grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, and it's our Heavenly Father. And so are you running to the world, or are you running from the world? Um. You know, it's interesting that uh, uh, Jesus tells us time and time again when following him that we are to count the cost. 
And so, again, I want you to think of this word commitment. But I also want you to realize that um, following Jesus will, will provide this, assurance. And so commitment, then there's assurance. Jesus says in verse 9 of Matthew 24, he says, You will be hated by all nations because of me. This is a guarantee that he makes. You see, persecution has a way of validating Jesus' presence in your life. When we experience opposition, when we experience persecution, we identify with Christ and receive just a taste of what he endured on our behalf when going to the cross. Now, have you ever shared something with someone? Maybe it was a thought, maybe it was a fear or struggle. And the moment you said it, you heard these two powerful words from their, from their mouth. Me too. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, chances are when you heard those two words, your relationship with that person changed from that moment on in a good way. I'll never forget when my wife and I, we hit it off in high school. We had known each other for uh, almost our entire life, and we found ourselves at this retreat one night talking around a campfire. And the more we began to talk and the more we began to have conversation, the more we heard each other say, you like that too? Me too. Your parents are like that as well? Mine too. Or that's, that's what you like, me too. Or that's what you struggle with, me too. You see, it's one thing to know about someone, and it's another to know someone by experience. And chances are, if I were to ask you if you knew a lot about your favorite actress or actor or athlete or maybe favorite president, chances are you could tell me a lot about that person. You could tell me where they're from, what their full name is, maybe who their spouse is. But we all know that facts don't equate to a close relationship with someone. And I think far too often we exchange the opportunity to know Jesus for just knowing about Jesus. It's like we're okay with plain information when God has something far greater for us than just this. And so the quickest way and the best way for you to take your relationship with Christ to the next level is for you to have a me too moment with Jesus. Well, that's great, but how does that happen? I mean, what does this look like? I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He gives us this formula. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, it just so happens that that word know in, verse, um, in, in that verse there, it literally means to know by experience. And so it communicates a desire for deep intimacy, community, and fellowship with one another that only happens when you identify with that other person. And so what Paul is saying here is that suffering gives us the opportunity to have me too moments with Christ. Why? Because adversity defined Jesus' life. And so when a friend turns their back on you, Jesus says, look, it happened to me too. My friend Judas betrayed me for 30 pieces of silver. When someone spreads rumors about you, Jesus says, look, it's okay, it happened to me too. People thought that I was possessed by demons when all I wanted to do was heal them. If you ever beg, if you ever do a favor for someone and the very next day they turn around and ask for your death, Jesus says, me too, I've been there before. I mean, how do you think it felt to be in Jerusalem that day and hear the crowd call for my crucifixion? You see, when you're persecuted, it is not only for Jesus, but it is with Jesus. And the opportunity to identify with Christ in our opposition, in my opinion, will become greater and greater as the end draws near, especially here in America. Now, the indicting evidence of this alone, um, in my opinion, is, is the way that this uh, idea of tolerance, the definition of tolerance has kind of changed over the years. 
It has gone from accepting that lots of people have different views, some of which are wrong, to agreeing that all views are equally valid. The old view of tolerance assumed that there is objective truth that can be known, while the new tolerance says that there is no objective truth, only what people believe to be true for themselves. Yet what's ironic about this new definition of tolerance is that it's extremely intolerant. (laughs) You see, the only sin today is calling something a sin. And so for people in in America who want to take the Bible seriously, life will not be easy. If you stand for God's definition of marriage, you will be labeled a bigot. If you claim that God created this world and is the author of all life, people will call you dumb and ignorant. I mean, if you build your life upon this belief that some person 2,000 years ago, some man claimed to be God, then rose, rose to life after three days of, after his death, you will be described as insane. You see, in some ways, to be opposed by men is to be approved by God, and to be approved by men is to be opposed by God. I mean, after all, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18, he promises us this, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so what will you do? Will you run to the world or will you run from the world? Will you identify with Jesus in your opposition or will you try to avoid it at all costs? Well, the last word that I want you to think about when it comes to opposition as a follower of Christ is this word and it's fruit. So commitment, assurance, fruit. Now as counterintuitive as it sounds, persecution always has a way of advancing the kingdom. It has a way of separating those whose faith is authentic and those who just want to follow Jesus for his benefits. Look at verse 13 in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, the evidence of your salvation is seen in your ability to endure opposition for the sake of Christ. Now, this is really uncomfortable to say. But if you throw in the towel when hardships come your way, maybe you weren't saved to begin with. And that's not what I'm saying, that's what Jesus says. What's interesting is that the church really didn't begin to take off and grow until persecution broke out against the Christians. And Acts chapter 8 verse 1 actually records that moment. Look at what it said. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all of the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. You see, the scattering enabled the gospel to move beyond the city walls of Jerusalem. And as a result, the church caught fire. And quite honestly, it really hasn't been extinguished since. Opposition forced these followers of Jesus to run to the world, not from the world. And when we run to the world, our only motivation is to reach more and more people with the gospel. And you see, if we must sacrifice our comfort... And if we must sacrifice our convenience and if we must sacrifice our finances and our reputation and maybe even our very own lives, so be it. It's for the advancement of the kingdom. You see, hell is real. Jesus is alive. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) I wanted to say it, but I can't really say that word up here, okay? Anyways, Jesus is alive. (laughs) 
That was awesome. <laughs> Salvation is available. And you know what? One day every person on this earth will stand before a holy and almighty God and give an account for his or her life. And you see, the only thing at that point, our only hope of justification is have you trusted in Jesus Christ? You can't earn your way through. You can't talk your way through. The only thing that matters at that point is have you began and do you have a relationship with Jesus? And so that's why as a church we run to the world with this message of hope and salvation and grace with open arms and not pointed fingers. This is one of the reasons why next week we are beginning what's called section host here in the worship center in the chapel before and after services. Now chances are most of us in this room, if you've been attending Crossroads for any extended period of time, we, have, we sit in the same sections every single week. And if we're not careful, what can happen is our size of a church can be a barrier to what's most important, like discipleship, community, strategic outreach, and worship. And so what section hosts will do before and after worship in the worship center and in the chapel is they will create community by building relationships with people through connecting with them, greeting them, and guiding them to take their next step in their relationship with Christ. You see, we want to create a hospital atmosphere here at Crossroads because that is a direct reflection of the gospel. Jesus has welcomed us into his family. And so now it's our job to do it the same, to do the same for others. And so we want to run to the world with open arms, not a pointed finger. Now, as a church, we have um, we've sent many people to a very Muslim-dominated part of the world, North Africa. And this past fall, one of our partners led a Muslim man, and we'll just call him Lasad, to Christ. Almost immediately after he was baptized in the Mediterranean Sea, a few of the local Muslim extremists came to his door and pressured him to pray to Allah. Well, declining their offer, the Muslims naturally wanted to know why. Lasad responded by saying, I follow Jesus, I'm now Christian. Well, upon hearing that, the Muslim left in a rage. The next day, a public announcement was made on Facebook of who Lasad was, where he lived, and what he believed. The post said something like this, anyone wanting to gain favor with Allah should carry out an attack on his life. Well, our partner asked Lasad if he feared this, and to that he said, no. He said, I have God. I don't need anything else. I read that, and I had to ask myself, if I knew an attack was imminent on my life, would I have the courage to say that? Would I have the trust in God to say, Lord, all I need is you? Now, I don't know about you, but it is so easy to lose focus in life. We can be so numb to what following Jesus is really all about because of our comfort, conveniences, and hobbies. And so like how, a, like how tires on your car need to be aligned every few thousand miles, every now and then we need to have our affections redirected towards Christ and his mission for us in this journey called life. Now, persecution will either make you or it will break you. And so as we advance towards the second coming of Jesus... As that coming is approaching, here's my one simple challenge to you. It's this. Live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. In his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, Stephen Covey talks about how effective people in this world always begin their calling by imagining the impact that they want to have in life. He calls this principle or this habit beginning with the end in mind. He says that people who make a difference imagine, conjure up the image in their mind of the impact that they want to have, and then the task each and every day 
enables them and inspires them to carry out, hopefully, to getting to that point of the impact and the difference that they want to make in people's lives. And you see, in a similar way, when we open up God's Word, God has done that for us. You see, when we open up Scripture, we have a snapshot of what's available and what is coming for every faithful follower of Jesus in this room. He gives us a picture of what what the end will entail. Now, in just a few moments, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion as a church. And you see, the reason why we do this every single week is not just because Jesus told us to do this, but you see, it allows us to be active participants in the foretelling of what's ahead for us in heaven. You see, the Bible tells us that we, the church, his people, are the bride of Christ and Jesus is our groom. Now, the primary analogy you'll notice isn't of a king and subjects. He's not our governor and we're his army. Why? Well, because God wants to relate to us as a groom relates to his bride. That's how much he loves you. You see, he gave his life for you. And drinking the juice and eating the bread is a tangible reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But you see, it's also, when we take communion, a forewarning of the wedding feast that we all need to be prepared for one day. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament actually foretells of this feast that will happen. And as I read this in just a moment, what I want you to do is I want you to think how following Jesus will cost you this week. And so as I read this, you might want to close your eyes. You might want to just imagine the adversity perhaps that you've already encountered as a Christian. How will your family members respond if you tell them that you're going to be baptized at Crossroads? How will your popularity diminish if you start a Bible study at school? Think about our brothers and sisters in North Africa that when deciding to be baptized, they are basically signing their funeral papers. Think about our brothers and sisters over in Egypt that are being martyred left and right. And so you do that as I read what is ahead for us as followers of Christ because we need to live with the end in mind. Here's what God says. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You see, this will be the culmination of Jesus uniting with us as his bride, the church. One author says this, reality will be so astonishing, the joy will be so incredible, the fulfillment will be so amazing that the most miserable life in Christ will feel like one night in a bad hotel. And so see through your opposition and live with the end in mind because the best is yet to come. In just a moment, the trays will be passed as we take the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, the band is going to be singing a song called Not For A Moment. And I just want to read you what the chorus says. It says, Not for a moment did you forsake me. After all, you were constant. After all, you were good. After all, you were sovereign. And so maybe that's a promise that you need to rest in going into this week. And after you're done taking the bread and the juice... You're more than welcome to stand and worship. You're more than welcome to just sit there and reflect. You're more than welcome to just pray. You you do what you, you need to do. You do what you feel led to do. But if you're here today and you're uncertain 
whether or not you'll be at the wedding feast in heaven and you've counted the cost of surrendering to Jesus, then what I invite you to do is receive Christ as people around you receive the bread and receive the juice. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship through communion and you do what you need to do. Let's pray. Father, you, you never promised us or you never told us that it would be easy. In fact, you told us just the opposite, that adversity and grief and suffering is something that we can anticipate. And so God, I pray that you would help us face these trials knowing that we aren't, we're, we're not only doing it for you, God, but we're doing it with you. Adversity defined the life of Jesus. And so Father, may we arrive at a point in our life where we can say it is a joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Ultimately, Lord, we are thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.